we've had a lot of different changes in our social environment as we've seen uh, our culture degrade over the last year, not that it wasn't degrading before then, but it seems to have accelerated. We've seen riots and protests and all different kinds of things happening. They've even occurred here in Dallas. Uh, we, uh, we've had numerous businesses that it, within the last year have been burned out in the riots and protests that some of those business owners have been murdered and killed trying to defend their shops or their businesses. Uh, we've seen our entertainment industry, our TV, our news, our sports, radio, print, you name it, whatever it is, all seem to have adopted a very different approach to life in America in the last year. One of the things that's happened as that has occurred is that Christians have become more targeted than they were before. I'm sure all of y'all have seen that. You've probably experienced it one way or another. It is now socially acceptable to verbally assault Christians ridicule, to mock and insult them. Uh, it's now acceptable for people to take a very anti-God, anti-Christian position publicly. A year ago that wasn't so true, at least not in this part of the world. You go back a generation that never happened, but now it seems to be very prevalent. As you see our culture moving further and further down that road, how do we react to that? You've seen it, I'm sure all of you have experienced it in one form or another. I'm very fortunate. I work in an environment where I'm the boss, and we don't have any anti-Christian positions or people around. If you come into our place and that's your position, you can leave if you feel like you need to advocate for that, but I'm not normal. I mean, most people don't have that luxury of being able to do that. Uh, so how do we react? You're in school, how do you react? Do we just say nothing? Don't respond, we walk away. We stand silent as we see those things happening. Do we consent to it? Does our silence indicate that we're consenting to that type of behavior? Does it mean that we participate in it? Do we do anything to stand up for the faith that we all share? Or do we try to hide and get out of the line of fire? You know, 
There are times when I'm sure everybody thinks that's the best option. If you're one in a group of 20 or 10 or a dozen and everybody's verbally assaulting Christians and their ethics and their morals and whatever else, it's probably easier just to sit there and not say anything. To kind of hide, hope nobody knows. Does that happen to us from time to time? Do we stand in defense of the kingdom of God or the word of God? Do we stand up when we know things aren't right? Even if we're one against the crowd? And if we do, how do we feel afterwards? You know, when you're back home and you're reflecting on your day and what happened and how you handled the pressure of that moment. In a lot of cases, we may recognize the fact that we folded under the pressure of that moment because that was the easiest thing to do. It's easier not to stand up and be counted. It's easier not to step out and put yourself in the line of fire. It's just easier to step back and hopefully somebody else will stand up and say something, but if they don't, that's okay. You know, As Christians, we are under pressure all the time, sometimes more overtly than others. Brethren, that's going to get worse and not better as our society continues to degrade. We're going to see that happening as the world we live in goes about its process of dehumanizing Christians. And that might no question about it that's the goal if you can dehumanize Christians then it's okay to do whatever you want to with them because they're not really people I know none of us were alive back when Hitler was doing that to the Jews but it took him about 10 years to go from the Jews were part of society to the Jews were going to re-education camps and of course we know nobody ever came back from those is that going to happen here someday I don't know I hope not but it may but as God's children we need to accept the fact that we're going to be called on to stand in defense of the kingdom of God and we're going to be called upon to defend his word And if that means that we are all going to suffer the consequences thereof, then that's what happens. I want to visit with you for just a few minutes this morning about Christians under pressure and the fact that inevitably we fail under that pressure from time to time. You look back on your day and and you see where you didn't stand in defense of 
God or the church or the kingdom or the word of God and you feel bad about that. That's what Satan wants you to feel like. That's his goal. You see, if, if he can put you in a position that you fail to defend the kingdom today, maybe he can do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And before long, you don't ever defend it. You just accept the fact that that's the way life is. And I don't have to step out there and do anything because I'm not comfortable doing that, you know. I don't feel good about being in the line of fire, so to speak. You know, we have Christians, well, of course, back then they weren't Christians, but followers of Christ that dealt with this same issue multiple times in the New Testament. I want to share with you a story that you all know very well about some of God's people who folded like cheap suits when under fire, when the pressure was mounted against them. I want to take you back to a night when our Lord was betrayed and hauled before the council. I'm not going to cover all that story. You know the story. You know about the Last Supper. You know about the Garden of Gethsemane. You know about Peter standing up and saying, I will never deny you. I'll die first. And we know that he actually took out a sword and cut Malchus' ear off when they came for him. He was ready to die at that moment. Jesus healed Malchus' ear, put it back on, and, and nothing happened. And now they're taking Christ into the council. And there are a couple of guys that go in there too. One of them's John. The other one's Peter. John 18 and 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did the another disciple. That other disciple is John. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So these two disciples have followed the band that took Christ and now they're in the palace with the high priest. And this is a very large complex I'm sure most of you have seen drawings or artist renderings of what it was supposed to look like in big courtyards and lots of people around. Remember whenever Peter was talking about how he was going to be strong when that time came and he would stand up and defend the Lord? And Jesus said, no, before the cock crows, you're going to die me three times. Look at verse 27. And Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. He folded under pressure, didn't he? This is the same Peter that when Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? And he said, You're the Son of the living God. I was telling him on this rock, I'm going to build my church. This is the same Peter 
that when Christ was walking across the water to see Galilee to come to them because they were really afraid the boat was going to sink and they were all going to drown. And Peter saw him out there and he said, if that's you, Lord, bid me to come with you. Christ said, come on. He actually stepped out on the water and made it for two or three steps before his faith faltered and he started to sink. This is the same Peter that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, as well as others. Fed 5,000 at one time with a few loaves and fish. Healed every manner of disease and malady man's known to possibly have contracted during that time. This is the man who watched all of that happen and yet under pressure he folded like a cheap suit. Luke 24, 1 through 3. There's one thing I might mention. You know, Luke has a little different story about Jesus and Peter's third denial. He reports that not only did Peter deny he knows Christ, the third time he cursed and swore to those around him, that he never knew the man. Anybody here do that this week? Person swear about the fact you don't know who the Lord is? I don't think so. I doubt if any of you did that. This week, last week, or probably ever. Peter did that. Now let's go forward in this story a little bit. Of course, Peter wept and cried after the conch crew because he remembered what the Lord had said. But now Luke 24, 1 through 3. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Of course, remember how Jesus' disciples took him down off the cross and took him and found a tomb for him, right? Remember that story? No, I don't think so. Because they didn't, did they? They all scattered like a cubby of quail. The two men that went and begged the body of Jesus were two of those guys that were kind of out there on the periphery. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Maybe they felt guilty because they were both members of the council and they didn't stand up and do very much to stop the crucifixion of Christ. Or maybe they thought that somebody needed to do something that they didn't want to leave him hanging there on the cross because at the close of that day, which was rapidly approaching, the Romans would have taken him down and thrown him on the trash dump of Jerusalem where the fires always burned and his body would have been consumed. No, they went, they took him down, they took him, they put him in the tomb. Not his disciples, not those men that had traveled with him for three years, and who are these women that are showing up here? 
most of them also traveled with Jesus for long periods of time. I don't know if they traveled with him for three years or not, but it was certainly a long time. You see, we get this concept that the 12 disciples and Jesus were kind of it. You know, I mean, they were basically the only ones that were moving around together, but that's not the way it was. There were many that followed him everywhere. We see times where the crowds grow very large and times where the crowds go very small, but there was a certain core group that was always there, and some of those women were part of that group. These women have gone to the tomb, and of course they don't find the body. What they do find is two angels there that ask them a question. Why seek you the living among the dead? They could have put that a different way. They could have said, why are you here looking for Christ when he told you he was going to be risen on the third day? Why didn't you believe what you were told? But they didn't. They were very nice about it. Verse 6, but he is not here. He is risen. Now he spake unto you when he was yet in Galloway. He told you what was going to happen. And you didn't believe it. Let's look at verse 9. And returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and all the rest. Now these same women now have gone back to where they were all hiding out and told them what's happened. He's not there. He's risen. We talked to the angels who said that, who reminded us of what he's been saying. Verse 10 says, It was Mary Magdalene and Jonah and Mary the mother of James and the other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. They've relayed what's happened. They've relayed what the angels have said. All these apostles, these 11 men, they all knew what Jesus had said. They've heard it over and over again. Verse 11. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. You see... When things don't go the way you expect them to go, and they actually kind of do a 180 on you, you know, you've got everything lined out and you think it's going to be this way, and the next thing you know, it's nothing like you thought it was going to be. In fact, it's almost the direct opposite of what you thought it was going to be. We kind of withdraw, don't we? We kind of take the position of, not me. Now, I'm not going to stand out there and involve myself in that fight. I'm not going to put myself out there for whatever's coming. That ridicule, that assault, the verbal assault, maybe physical assaults, whatever it is. So we withdraw because we don't have the faith 
to continue on, not at that moment. These apostles, they traveled with Christ for three years. We've gone over the list of things they saw him do over those three years. They heard what he had to say. And yet, now these women that they've traveled with, family members to some of these men, have come back and said, this is what's happened. He's risen. The angels told us that. He's, it's really happening, just like it's supposed to. And these 11 men, along with however many others, were there, heard that, they listened to it, and they believed them not. They didn't believe it. You see, that's what happens when we find ourselves as human beings putting our faith and confidence in us. You know, we think that we should be able to analyze, to figure out, to know what to do, to know what's going to happen. And everything goes opposite to the way we thought it was going to go. And we just withdraw. And then we can't function. We're not any good in the fight anymore because we've become part of the problem. And that's what these guys have done. That's what these 11 apostles and all the rest of them that are there that have been following Christ, that's what they've done. Two of these men, not of the 11 apostles, in verse 23 of Luke 24, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. So that's, I don't know, I'm not that great on measurements. That's around eight or ten miles. But you've got to remember, Jerusalem sets up in the mountains. And to go anywhere outside of Jerusalem, you're, you're traveling on mountain trails. They didn't have interstates back then. They didn't even have paved roads. They had donkey trails, cart trails. So this was not an easy, you know, two or three hour walk. They probably spent most of the day making that journey. And as they're going, of course, they're talking about what happened. What happened in Jerusalem? What happened to Jesus, the Messiah, the one that was going to save us all? What happened? And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Then go to verse 18. And the one of them whose name was Cleopas, and he said unto them, What things? They're talking about what's happened in Jerusalem, what happened to Jesus, how it's all come down. And he said unto them, What things? This is Jesus talking. And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. In verse 20, and now the chief priests and our rulers have delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Because they don't know that's Jesus they're talking to. They're just explaining what's happened and why they're getting out of town. Because it's over. The thing they thought was going to happen, it's not going to happen. 
Then they talk about those certain other women, verse 23, and when they found not his body, talking about the women that went to the tomb, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said he was alive. Verse 25, then he, he is Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then he started with Moses and went through all the prophecies and taught them again up until the current times. And then we go to verse 30. And it came to pass that Jesus sat down to share a meal with these two men. And he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then verse 31, and their eyes were opened. And they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Find something interesting here in this story. Jesus has not yet gone to the house where the uh, 11 apostles are. These are two men that were traveling with the group that have left. He's caught up with them on the side of the road as they traveled. But of course, it had a tremendous impact on these two. They immediately decide to get back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples what has happened. To report that the Lord is risen and he's among us. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, what do you suppose the reaction of these 11 disciples is going to be? And all the others in that room, they've had three years traveling with him. They've seen him do all those miracles. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen all the things Christ have done. How would they react now that they've had the report of the women who went to the tomb? Now they've got the report of the two men that had left. And now they're back. And now Jesus stands there before them. Luke 24 and 37. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they had seen a spirit. Scared to death. They think they're seeing a ghost. They still don't believe, do they? They've got all the reports. They've heard all of the teachings of Christ. They've seen all the miracles. Talk to these men who have spoken to Christ and saw him on the road. And they still don't believe. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And while they yet believed not for joy, can you imagine that? 
Put yourself in that place. After all of that, they still don't believe it. They still don't believe what's happening, that they're a part of, that they're involved with. Believe not for joy. That means instead of being happy and shouting and praising God and doing all the things that you would normally do in a very joyous, jubilant situation, no, not so much. Instead they wondered and said unto them, have you here any meat? Jesus is telling them, give him something to eat. And they gave him a piece of oral fish and honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Verse 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45, and then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and know exactly what's going on. Verse 46, and he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are all witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Stay here until the day of Pentecost. And then you're going to see what happens. Then we go to 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried unto heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And of course we know the rest of the story, don't we? You see now in the next 30 years, these men and those believers of Christ are going to take the gospel message to the world. Paul is going to say in Colossians 1 and 23 that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. About 30 years later. Maybe 32, 33, but certainly not a long period of time. You see, these men who folded like cheap suits, who ran and hid, who cursed and denied they even knew the Lord, who did all the things that you could do to crumble under pressure, they came back strong, didn't they? Every one of them came back strong. Every one of these men, save John, will be mortared in very difficult circumstances for the faith. Not only did they come back strong, they devoted their entire lives to preaching the gospel, and they endured all kinds of hardships. 
I don't have time to go through the list Paul has written about, but you know what that list is. I mean, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was, you name it, it happened to him. And the other apostles didn't fare much better. They came back and they stood strong and they did what the Lord knew they were capable of doing when he selected them. And we can all do the same. No matter what happens that causes us to fold under pressure, we can come back strong. Don't let that become a habit. If the situation dictates things around you in such a way that you choose to do what these guys did, run and hide, Roll under the table, not stand up, deny even it, whatever the case. I want you to remember that the very chosen disciples of Christ did exactly the same thing and worse. And yet they came back and spread the gospel message throughout the entire world. They spread it to everybody. Don't let one or two problems that cause you to maybe not be as strong as you'd like to be become a habit. Come back strong. Let's look at Philip, Philippians 4 and 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. You ever think about that? I think most of the time when we think about that verse, we're thinking about our own personal ministry, maybe our own personal lives and what's going on. And we're not thinking so much about our witness to those around us. We're not thinking so much about what we're doing to defend the kingdom of God or to advance the gospel message. Think about that in those regards. Look for opportunities to do good in Jesus' name. And let them know that's why you're doing it. Encourage other people to think about Christ. To think about God. Because they're not getting it anywhere else. They don't teach it in school anymore. I guess the Bible is a forbidden book in most school libraries now, I suppose. Use those opportunities. You can do anything through Christ that gives you the strength. All you've got to do is just make up your mind you're going to do it. Just open your heart and let him lead you to be the witness he wants you to be. 2 Timothy 1 and 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Think about that. God hadn't given us, any of us, a spirit of fear. So when you feel like you are afraid to step out there and be counted, Think about that. God didn't give me a spirit of fear. 
but of love and of power and the sound mind to contend with those who would oppose the faith. Trust in the Lord to take care of the rest. Our job is to step out there and be counted, to not live our lives in fear, to not cower, to not crater. But if you do, remember you're in good company. Those 11 disciples who became those 11 apostles, as well as the whole multitude of people that were traveling with them, they all cratered, folded like cheap suits. But they came back strong. That's what we got to do. Don't let the pressure of being a Christian in today's environment cause you to live a life that is not counted toward his glory. And for that to happen, you have to step up and be counted. Because if you're going through life hiding from opportunities to spread the love of Christ, to have the spirit of power and of love and grace, then your existence is going to be pretty shallow. You're not going to like it. Stand up and be counted. And when you fall down, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and get back in the fight. That's what these guys did. That's what the Lord expects all of us to do. That concludes my remarks of the morning. I hope that you can use some of that in your walk. Haven't really talked about first principles. But if you've been sufficiently taught, the water's here and it's ready. Thanks, even warm. So uh, please come and obey the gospel. Or if we can help you with anything else, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.